thanks for listening to the Radiant Church Podcast. This is David Perkins, and we're so glad that you're listening. Hey, if you're a part of our family meeting online or in person, we want to encourage you to get connected at Radiant Church KC across all social media platforms. God is doing something incredible in Kansas City, and we love connecting with you, whether it's through our app or even through all the content available on our YouTube page. Hey, our prayer is that God uses this message to change your life and that you could become a dynamic disciple of Jesus. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this message. All right, well, let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love your word. We love how you speak to us through your word, the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So God, I pray right now that you would do what only you can do. You're the only one who can transform us. You're the only one who can change us. So Jesus, have your way in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Who has ever read the Bible and you just went, huh? There's moments like that, right? I have a degree in theology, and there's moments where I read the Bible, and I'm like, what? How's that work? And that moment, those moments are not knocks on our intellect. It's not somehow saying that we're dumb or we're stupid or any of those things or we don't get it. What it usually what I found in those moments, there are historical, cultural, societal norms in Jesus' day or in the time that the text was written that don't translate to 2023 Kansas City. And all the people go, that makes sense, right? That's a moment. So what happens is, though, when we begin to approach the Word of God and we think that we understand all of it is the exact moment that we stop being able to receive from the Word of God. Because the Bible says that it's alive, that it's active, that it's actually doing surgical precision work on our hearts and in our lives if we allow it to. So when we come to the Bible, our goal is not to just read the text, but to allow the text to read us and transform us. And there's moments that I think that we're going to get into today in Luke chapter 7 that have some of these historical cultural norms that if we don't pause and talk about them, if we don't pause and discuss what was happening and the implications of what was happening in the text, that we really do ourselves a disservice. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to jump into Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 36. So I'm going to read the text, and then what we're going to do is, because it's a, it's a big section, there's a lot happening, I want to read the text at first, and then we're going to kind of chew through it. We're kind of going to break it down verse by verse as we go. And it starts like this. One of the Pharisees asked him, this is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's not in question. You know, it's, it's a, that's a definitive statement. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he wouldn't have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And now Jesus goes into this parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now which one will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Now, there's so much to unpack in these, these 14 verses. There are so many things going on. Just when you do a quick, quick read of this text, we've got Jesus, the actual situation that's happening. Jesus going to a Pharisee's house and eating. So we've got some stuff going on there. We've got Jesus interacting, not just with one person, but with two people. Then in the middle of his interactions, we have Jesus then telling a parable on top of his interacting with two people. So we have all these layers that are kind of going in, this recipe, this mix, that's all going in and coming together in this one section of scriptures. And if we don't stop to unpack what would have been normal, what would have been right, what would have been expected of each of these moments, of each of these verses, we can miss out on some of the beauty and the richness in the word of God. So the first thing I want to grasp is that the Jewish people had a, have a culture of hospitality. This is embedded into who they are as a people. All the way back in the book of Genesis, you can actually see Abraham embracing hospitality and doing certain things when he would have guests. What would happen? What would they do? And here are some of the things that just got embedded into Jewish culture as a means of hospitality. A kiss of welcome. This is just a, oh, oh, I'm glad that you're here. I want to welcome you into my home moment. Washing of the feet's guests with water. Feet are dirty. And all the people said amen. amen. Feet were dirtier then because they, they walked in sandals and they walked everywhere. So what would happen is when you would come to someone's house, it was expected that they would provide a means to have your feet washed. Now, if you were in a flu at home, you would have a servant do this for your guests. Chances are it would have been your lowest servant. If you were middle class or poor, you as the host would have taken on this responsibility as a display of hospitality to your guests. You would have washed their feet. Olive oil for the guest hands. This would have been like first century soap. They would have put olive oil on their hands. They would have rubbed it in and they would have, that's how they would have cleaned their hands before eating. And then they would have anointed the head of the honored guest with special oils. So this could have been a rabbi, a Pharisee, a politician, someone who is an influential or, or has some notoriety to them. They would have been anointed as the special guest. And you see this all throughout the Gospels. You see over and over Jesus getting anointed, right? Because he was this guest of honor at so many of these meals. And then what would happen is in the culture of hospitality, it is not like we do now, right? Now we send emails and say, hey, you want to come over? We're going to have a party or whatever. And you, you RSVP via email, all the things. It would have been gotten around town that a party was happening. Someone was coming over to dine with somebody else. So in this situation that Jesus was coming to dine with a Pharisee. So people in the town then would have just shown up and they were allowed to come in. Has anyone ever crashed a party you've thrown? Like that bugs you, right? This is, this is a true story. I didn't say this. I actually had someone crash my wedding, um, a family member who wasn't invited. So I, I know the feeling very well of when, so, yeah, it, it was my family, not Rachel's. It's okay. Um, I, I, I'm dealing with my own root of bitterness. No, I'm kidding. Um, it was 14 years ago. Anyway, so, um, so there's these moments where people just show up and that was normal. So what you would do is you would have a guest go, okay, hey, all right, out the door, someone's walking in. Oh, this person is an important person. They get to go to the table. They get to be a part of what's happening in the center of the room. Oh, this person's showing up. They are not important. They get to go stand by the wall. They get to go around the room. And what would happen is after the guest, the honored guest at the table would have eaten, they would have taken the leftover food, the extra food, and then provided food for the people around the wall, on the wall. Now, the second thing you need to grasp about this moment of just Jesus showing up at a Pharisee's house. This was early in Jesus's ministry. He began ministering as a 30-year-old. The age of 30 was the age that you could begin being a rabbi in Jewish custom. So Jesus, a young rabbi, stepping onto the scene, starting to come up in fame and notoriety and known and all of these things, gets invited to a Pharisee's house. This is not the Pharisee being kind to Jesus. This isn't the moment where you're like, this is the one. This is the Pharisee who's finally nice to Jesus, right? Because in the gospels, the Pharisees automatically are the bad guys, right? 
I'm, I'm kind of joking, but yes. So there's this moment where it's like the Pharisees inviting Jesus not as a way to honor Jesus and to, to, to revere him and to say, I recognize who you are. This was the opportunity for the older Pharisee to vet, to question, to challenge the authority of Jesus. So he's not coming as an honored guest. He's coming to, I'm gonna see if the hype's really worth it. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna ask questions on any theological station or area that I want to, to see if I can trap you, to trick you, to confuse you, to see if you're worth your merit as a rabbi. So that's what's happening in this moment. And we've got a low table in the room. Like I said, I just want you to get the scene before we even jump into the rest of the text. There's a low table. They didn't have tables and chairs. This is not our dining rooms in Kansas City. A low table on the room. They would have leaned on their left elbow, head toward the table, feet away from the table because feet are gross and they shouldn't be near food. So there's this moment where it's like you're leaning toward the table and they would have eaten with their right hand. So that's what's happening. And Jesus is at the table. He's reclining. He's hanging out. He's beginning to eat at this Pharisee's home. And then in verse 37, it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and, he, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So we got all these people from the city coming and showing up at this Pharisee's house, right? They're all there. And this woman of the town who is like, the, the titling is not in question, who was a sinner. So she has a reputation of being sinful. I'm not gonna hypothesize what it takes to get that reputation in the Bible. They're like just being labeled that. But it's this moment she shows up and she begins to wash Jesus's feet with her tears and then anointing his feet with oil. Now, just pause right there. Just think for a moment. Like, Jesus gets invited to the Pharisee's house, does not get anointed as the guest of honor, and yet this woman is washing his feet with her tears and anointing his feet with oil. There's this moment where this woman begins to make a bit of a scene. Okay, let's be real. This is not like a bit of a scene. This is like a huge scene. Like, it's not like, oh, she has a really sweet, pretty cry, right? This is like ugly cry. She is weeping and washing Jesus's feet with her hair. This is a scene. This is like, this is drama to the max. How many of you guys ever at a party, you ever in a situation or you're, you're hanging out and all of a sudden the drama starts to escalate? You know these moments, there are two types of people. There are the people who are like, I'm going to fade away. How many of you are with me? You're like, oh, drama's starting. I'm just backing away slowly so they can't see me moving. No sudden movements. I am getting my keys and I am heading out the door. How many of you guys are with me? How many of you guys are like, hey, where's the popcorn? This is giving me life right now. I'm going to be able to talk about this for the next six to eight weeks easily. I'm here for the drama. Let me see it. This is one of these moments where it's just so filled with drama. Now, when the Pharisee, in verse 38, now, 39, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, think about this, this is just his internal thinking. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, I know our default mode is to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to Pharisees. I know our default mode is they are automatically bad. But let's be real. You throw a party, someone starts making a scene, and all of the guests are looking where for someone to step in. They're looking at the host. They're looking at you to step into this moment to fix it because whether you got the popcorn or you're trying to fade in the wall, you know this drama's got to come to an end somehow. So this moment happens and he's like this Pharisee in his mind, he's there to vet Jesus, gives him a dig and is going, if this, if this young rabbi, if he was really a prophet, he would have known who this woman was. He would have known that she is a notorious sinner. 
that she should not touch him, that the clean cannot touch the unclean, that that woman needs to go back to the wall where she belongs because there is a separation, there is a divide that needs to be maintained from the holy and the unholy. That's what this guy's thinking. That's what's going on. And most of us, I think we would side with the Pharisee if we're deep down and honest with ourselves. Because there's this moment in our lives where we have to be honest with ourselves and go, you know what? Sometimes I think we would be more like the Pharisee. I think if something got out of hand at my house, I would step in and try to correct it. That I wouldn't look at the, the my default mode wouldn't be, I, you know what? I think she's probably right. Come on. When your kid throws a tantrum, do you go, you know what? I think they might be right. No, no one does that. You're like, I'm getting you out of the store right now and wait until we get to the car. That's just me. Sorry. That's just, that's me. But in verse 40, Jesus says, he looks at him. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Like just, you don't want to be there. Like, that's just not, this is not going, is going in the direction Simon thought it was going to. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And to everyone in the room, Jesus begins to tell this parable. And what's amazing is that the, for Israelites, for the nation of Israel, the purpose of parables in Jesus' day were not to elicit or to develop an intellectual framework for life. It was not, let me hear this parable and let me think about it, how I can apply this to my past seasons of life or my future seasons of life. How can I apply this parable to how I, I think about something? No, 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 the purpose of parables in Jesus' day were to elicit a response from the listener, to force a decision to be made by the hearer. And I love it because Jesus is at this Pharisee's house so the Pharisee can ask him questions. And Jesus has already turned it on its head and saying, let me ask you a question. Verse 41 says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. This is amazing to me because Jesus does a lot in this moment. He not only corrects the Pharisee, but he validates the woman. You know, one of the traps that we fall into when we're reading the Bible is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which means basically this is because we live in 2023 and we've got big brains and we're educated and we know more because we're modern. We automatically assume that we would be in the right and we would know the right and we would do the right when we're looking at biblical narratives historically. And our moment, our trap is when we look at these moments to automatically assume I would, my default would be, be the right person. I would be the right person in this story. But when we look at these two people, everything about our upbringings and everything about where we've grown up in the United States of America and in Kansas City actually pushes us probably to side with the Pharisee more than we're comfortable to admit. We think about things in scale. We think about things in right, not right. We think about important, not important. When we look at the Pharisee, we go, his life is together. He's hosting Jesus for a party. His finances are in order because he can afford to feed Jesus and the people on the wall. He's, he's doing things right. He has scripture memorized. He, has, he ties, he gives, he serves, he does. He teaches other people about Jesus. He does all, or teaches other people about God. The Pharisee's doing all these things. And the woman, she's a mess. I mean, she's like, she's riding the hot mess express. She's just is like, that's her whole life. And we look at it in terms of scale, you know, we, we grow up and we, we think about images like the images like the Lady Justice, right? If you guys, you guys know this image, the image of Lady Justice, it's this woman, uh, she's often blindfolded in this image. She's got, she's not blindfolded, but often she's blindfolded. She's got a sword in one hand and a scale in another because she's like, we're going to weigh, we're going to measure and we're going to figure out who's right. And the, the sword in the other hand representing justice like that, it's going to, it's, it's happening whether you like it or not. And in this moment, 
we, we look at things on a sin scale because this is embedded in our hearts and our minds because of how we've grown up. And we look at these two people and we go, one of them is a 50. You know, it's like the parable that Jesus is telling. One of them is a 50 and one of them is a 500. And we know which is which. Right? We go, hey, this woman was promiscuous. She probably had to lie just to survive. She was lying to herself. She was lying to other people. She, who knows? She, she let her hair down publicly. That was way scandalous. Only, you, typically women, the only person who would ever see your hair was your husband. So she's like letting her hair down publicly. That's like, whoa, crazy town. Like that's, like all of these things, she doesn't understand party etiquette. Like that's a party, like don't, that's party foul. Don't do that. Like she is a hot mess. And then you've got this guy over here who, you know, yeah, okay, maybe he's greedy. Maybe he's, maybe he's proud. He's arrogant. But you know, he's got his life together. So on the scale of justice, we're sitting there going, okay, this guy's got, got some greed. His, his, his side's going down. He's, he's, he's arrogant. He's prideful. He's all these things. Well, but he's got his life together. He's a good upstanding citizen. He's memorized a lot of scripture. And we got this woman over here going, oh, this, it's pretty clear. Who's the 500 and who's the 50? But that's not the reality because if we're honest and we look at the truth of scripture, they were both 500s. We're all 500s. Simon's real problem at his dinner party was not the drama. His real party was that he was blinded, that he could not see himself rightly, he could not see this woman rightly, and he could not see Jesus rightly. That the very scriptures as a Pharisee that he would have memorized, grown up with, developed, devoured his entire life were the scriptures that were pointing him to the word become flesh, dwelling among him at his table in that moment in time. And he was utterly blinded and unable to see the truth. It was so easy for him to go, she is a sinner. But it was impossible for him to go, I'm a sinner. That I don't deserve this, that I've made mistakes. He couldn't see who was on the table. He couldn't see who was in the room with him. He failed to realize that it's impossible to come to God through our own good performances. And I love this because Jesus, this is like this, this beautiful moment in verse 44 that we get to see. And Jesus, he says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, like, just think about this. You, like, you've had these moments before, right? Especially if you're a parent, when you've, you've looked at one child, but you're correcting another one, right? This is this moment, right? Where like, you're looking at one person and you're saying, hey, what you did was what you did was unkind, but you're making sure that this person understands the validation, the heart, the posturing that I am with you in the moment I'm correcting someone else. This is one of these moments where Jesus is, is looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. And he says, literally, the thing about Simon's blindness, do you see this woman? Jesus is identifying Simon's blindness. Do you see this woman? Do you know who is in the room? And I love this because we think Jesus doesn't pay attention to the details. But just look at, look at this moment that Jesus says. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Simon was blind to who was in the room. 
that the author of life, the word become flesh, God incarnate, Jesus Christ was at his table. And Simon fell into the trap that I think so many of us do. The enemy tries to get our focus and our attention and our gaze off of Jesus and onto sin. And I think there's a couple ways this plays out for us. I think the, the trap of the Simon, the Pharisee, is this, that I'm going to get my eyes off of Jesus because I'm going to be so focused on the sins of other people. I'm going to be so focused on what their mistakes were, that their issues are, that their, their sin, their problems, the things that they have wrong in their life. I'm going to be focused on this. And if I can focus on that, then what I can do in my own mind, I can justify any amount of behavior I want because on the sin scale, they're the 500. And just by virtue of comparison, I got to be better. When their scale goes down, mine goes up. I'm going to focus on someone else's sin. I think another trap is for really the unnamed people in this story are the people on the wall. The people whose society would have said was less than, unworthy, not important, not valuable, not bringing any substance to the table, so they're going to hang out on the wall, and they can look at themselves and go, my sin is too great that I can't come to Jesus. So often when I'm talking to people and I'm, I'm having conversations at coffee shops or, or just around town with people, one of the frequent things I hear is, man, when I get my life in order, then I'm going to start serving Jesus. When I, get, when I get this situation squared away, when I stop doing this or I stop doing that, then I'll, I'll start coming back to church. We get so fixated on our own sin that we lose, we go become blind to who is in the room. We either make other people's sins so big that it makes us feel valuable, or we make our sins so big that we feel invaluable. We feel broken. We feel worthless. But like this woman, we need to re recognize who's in the room. Because I love in the book of Romans, it says, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, we're all 500s. So it doesn't matter if you think your sin is small or you think your sin is great. We are a 500. We are all sinners. But loving us so much, this is how God shows his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, yet means present tense, we were sinners, we are sinners, that Christ died for us. And even when you look at the dynamic of the room, the table, the people on the wall, the woman, the Pharisee, all of these things, in Romans 8 it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate us? Trial, famine, issues, all of these things, tribulation, nothing can separate us from the love of God. When Jesus is in the room, there is no holy versus unholy separation. Jesus comes and says, who can separate you? I'm going to bring myself, my holy self close to you. And the enemy tries to overwhelm us with shame, with guilt, with regrets, so that we take our eyes off of Jesus and we become blind to who's in the room. When, we're all, when we realize we're all 500s, it enables us to see Jesus rightly because there is a moment when we begin to recognize our own sin for what it is. The Bible says there's no righteous, no one, not one. When we recognize in our own sin, who we are, what that does is that allows us to see Jesus properly. We are able to see the power and the grace of Jesus Christ active and working in our lives in a way that enables us to glorify him on the earth. That's what enables us like this woman to see and respond the way that she did to Jesus. It wasn't that she was unaware of her sin. I really believe this. It wasn't that she was unaware of her sin. It's that she was infinitely aware of her sin and she was infinitely aware of who was in the room with her. And it's that moment that transforms our lives. Now, we see this in 38. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet, her, wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with his hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. Now, 
There's a cultural norm here that I want to I want to I want to take a minute on because I think it's valuable and I think it adds value to the text. Is that Jewish people's primary concern was not to intellectually understand scripture but to embody them, but to live them. So it was not let me read a verse of the Bible, not let me read a psalm and let me just intellectually digest this and think about this in a way that will maybe help me down the road or change the way I, I approach life or something like that. Their primary concern with scripture was, how do I embody this text? How do I become obedient to this text? How do I change what I am actively doing in my life to conform to this text? So we see in Psalm 56, it says this in verse eight, it says, you have kept count on my tossings. And you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So because of this psalm and others for thousands of years, Jewish women were not intellectually digesting the, the philosophical concept of God collecting tears in a jar. They were literally trying to embody this text. So they actually developed what we would call today tear jars an actual literal jar that when they would weep, when they would cry, they would collect their tears in a jar and then they would pour them out as an act of affection, of love, of honoring the greater versus the lesser. So in this moment, what we see is, now it's not in the text. It is not, it is not written in the text that this woman has a tear jar. But when it's saying that she is washing the feet of Jesus with tears, it is a, a, what I would say, a healthy cultural assumption that this woman did not just bring a jar of oil, of alabaster with her, but she also brought her tear jar. That she would have brought her tear jar, which represents all of her past, Everything that she was, every moment of pain, every moment of disappointment, every moment of grieving, every moment that she looked and witnessed brokenness in her own life. Can you imagine every moment that you've ever been broken, that you've ever experienced pain, anxiety, stress, overwhelming fear, and you're weeping and you're literally collecting those tears in a jar? All of her past. In this moment, and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears. This beautiful representation of all of her past. That the sum total of every fear, the sum total of every loss. We don't know this woman's story, but like, just, just think like the infant and youth mortality rate in Jesus's day, first century Jer Jerusalem was over 50%. So over 50% of children died before the age of 16. Grief and weeping and anguish was a normal part of life. All of it, all of her past. And then she pours it out. She washes the feet of Jesus with her tears. And she doesn't stop there. She doesn't just bring her past. But she also brings her future. She brings an alabaster jar of oil. This would have been the most valuable possession this woman would have ever owned. Alabaster is not native to Israel. It would have been imported probably from Egypt. All of her hopes for her future, all of her, any, any piece of financial security, any hope of station of life change. This woman was at a low station of life. And yet in this moment, she has this bottle of alabaster oil that would have represented her ability to transform her life, her ability to, to own a home or to have a dowry one day possibly, or any of these things that would, that would dramatically change her life. All of it is encompassed in this jar of alabaster oil. Every hope, every dream, Every piece of her future, it's all in this jar. And she takes both of them and she pours them out on the feet of Jesus. 
This woman says, my future is in your hands. My past is at your feet. I am bringing all that I am, all that I ever hoped to be, all of my mistakes, my shame, my guilt, all of my past and all of my future. I'm taking my past and my future and I'm bringing it to Jesus in the present. And in this beautiful moment, this woman says, everything that I will ever be or ever have ever been is poured out at the feet of Jesus. It's both. It's our past. It's our futures. It's the brokenness that we can't understand. And it's the things, the hopes that we're afraid to even admit to. The things that we try to control in our own power and our own might and our future. Because if we, if we let it go and we, get, we lay it at the feet of Jesus, then we're no longer in control and we have to trust him with our future. And that's a terrifying place for so many of us. But this woman says, my past and my future is all yours. The beauty of this is because the future you the future you, the one a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, is just an exaggerated version of the current you. What gets attention, what gets your focus, what gets nurtured, what gets fed, those things in your life that will grow and mature into your future and the things that get neglected, that get starved, to get, get pushed down now, that suffer now, will suffer more in the future. So what happens is if we're able to, like this woman, take everything that we are in these moments and pour them out at the feet of Jesus, we're able to string together these moments of transformation, of impact, of of life change, these little seemingly insignificant moments of our lives. We bring them to Jesus and we're transformed because of it. The moments that we feel like we've got it all together when we bring those to Jesus. We're not going to be blinded like Simon the Pharisee and think that we have it together. No, no, no. Every moment when we've got it together, we're still going to bring it to the feet of Jesus. When we've made mistakes and fallen short, we're going to bring it to the feet of Jesus. When we, when we have fears and hopes and aspirations for our future, we're going to bring it to Jesus. And in those small moments, when we get to see the value of those small moments, the grace of God and those opportunities that we have, that we're actually, we're empowered to love who we are in Christ Jesus. And we're able to see our life as God sees it, not how we see it. Because it's so easy for us to skew our own perceptions. We minimize our sin or we maximize our sin. And it's easy to to fall into that trap. But when we see these opportunities to look at Jesus, to know that Jesus is in the room, to bring him all that we are, all that we hope to be, in these little divine moments, we're able to see our life become transformed. And when, when this becomes habitual, what actually happens is we begin to see it compound the impact in our life. We don't just see a moment of opportunity as a moment of opportunity. We see these moments as the the transformative, the compounding impact of the summation of all of these moments over the course of our lives. Look, Albert Einstein said this. I love this quote. Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it, earns it. He who doesn't, pays it. There is a compounding effect of opportunity. Every moment that we have to say yes to Jesus compounds in our lives. A moment is never a moment. A moment always leads to the next moment, right? Let me show you what I mean. Here you go. This is a piece of paper. This is just a normal piece of paper out of my printer at home. And just in case you're wondering where this is going, uh, Rachel actually vetted this because I told her this illustration and she did not believe me. She was the Pharisee. I was Jesus. I'm kidding, but I did have to prove the math. Um, so she was legit vetting me. So there's just a single piece of paper. This is like a percentage of a millimeter thick, right? This is a normal piece of paper. But what happens is when you fold a piece of paper, what happens? It doubles in width. Now, the world record of folding a piece of paper in half like this is how many times would you guess? 
So, oh, okay, so you guys are lower than I thought, okay. The world record of folding a piece of paper in half is 12 times. Now, the woman who did this, actually, the piece of paper was like tissue paper thickness, and it was over a mile long. So on a normal piece of paper like this, you're, I'm able to fold this six times. That's it. So six times. So I go from a percentage of a millimeter in thickness to maybe a quarter inch in thickness, right? This is the compounding effect of folding a piece of paper. Now, if I was able, this piece of paper was large enough and I was able to continue folding it, at 13 folds, I would own the Guinness Book of World Records, right? At um, 26 folds, this piece of paper set it on the floor, on the ground in Kansas City, 26 folds would be the height of Mount Everest. It gets better. At 42 folds, at 42 folds, this piece of paper set on the ground in Kansas City would reach past the moon. You can Google it. I heard you don't believe me. <laughs> and at 51 folds, just seven more folds, this piece of paper folded in half 51 times would pass the sun. We tend to overestimate what we can do in the short term, but we underestimate what happens in the long term. So we, have all, we all have these moments, right? We all have these moments in life where we just think that we're just living through life. This is, we're just living life. But what happens is when we begin to say yes to Jesus, when we begin to, to marry the past and our future and to seize the opportunities that are in front of us to, to bring all that we are to Jesus, it has a compounding impact. So when you're an 18-year-old and you say, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, standing in, in the back of the room in worship one moment, it creates a compounding effect. That one decision impacts the rest of my life. And then somehow three weeks later, you convince the youth pastor to let you start serving in youth ministry. It's a bad idea for him. It was great for me. It creates a compounding effect. You just, you begin saying yes to it, to whatever it is. Hey, youth group is in a dirty place next to a grocery store. Thank God for upgrades. Um, your job, Nathan, is going to be to empty out the mousetraps before youth group. Okay. It creates a compounding effect. Nathan just keeps, you just, you just keep saying yes to those opportunities in your life. Whatever they are, whatever they look like, I'm just going to say yes. November 2015, I get a phone call from David Perkins saying, I'm going to plant a church in Kansas City. I would love for, for Rachel and you to come and be a part of the team. We just say yes. And we just serve. No decision is just a decision. Every decision that you take toward Jesus, every step that you take toward Jesus has a compounding impact on your life. So as we're just faithful, listen, there are no small steps toward Jesus. Every step matters. And when we allow ourselves to break free of the what's next world that we live in, the what's next society that's constantly just going, hey, I did that for a week and hey, what's next? Hey, I tried surfing. I tried doing that thing. I tried a small group. I went to it for two weeks and then I'm done with that. What's next? I surfed for like a month, but then they didn't let me do it. I just kept doing the same thing over and over again. What's next? I want, I want, I want to set you free today. Christi your Christianity, the worth, the value of your Christianity is better seen in years and decades than days and weeks. Because there's a compounding effect as you say yes to Jesus. Every decision we get to make toward God, toward Jesus, every step that we get to take toward discipleship, toward discipling other people, toward impacting other people, is a step that compounds our collective impact on the world. It's this beautiful marriage that this woman who was on the wall came to Jesus' feet and said, I'm going to bring all my past. I'm going to bring all my future. And I'm going to see and I'm going to pour them out on the feet of Jesus in the present. Because all I need to do is recognize who's in the room. I don't need to do anything else. It's not on me to do anything else. 
All I have to do is recognize that Jesus is in the room. If we recognize that one thing, our lives can be transformed. You just need to recognize who's in the room. Who's in the room right now? See, I, I love the word of God because it all works together. That's why Jesus says he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's in the room. That's why he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is in the room. When our past sin and our past issues and struggles feel like luggage and baggage that we have to limp our way through life with because we can't let go of it, we can't get past it, we can't move on from it, Jesus is in the room. When our future looks insurmountable, when you look at all the things in your family and the way you were raised and how all the things, and you're just going, I don't know how it all will work together. I don't know how I can break free. I don't know how I can be different from the rest of my family. Jesus is in the room. And when you look at him, when you fix your focus on him, your life is able to be transformed. Your life is able to change. Have you ever met somebody, have you been talking to a small group or at a coffee shop and, and you just, you start talking to them and then they start telling you their story. They start telling you who they were and what they were like before they, they began a relationship with Jesus and they've been serving God for decades and you're just like, you look at them like there's such a big disconnect. You're like, how? I can't even imagine that that, that was you. Like that's, that's your story. Listen, you don't know who you're sitting by. Some of you just looked at your neighbor for the first time and was like, maybe I don't. You know, the, you don't know who you're sitting by because you don't know the transformative power of God at work in their lives. When we say yes to Jesus, when we give all that we are to Jesus, what happens is he begins a work that begins to transform us from the inside out, that he does not have the people on the wall and the people at the table. He says, no, 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 no. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. The, your sin does not keep Jesus away. Your sin actually makes Jesus want to come close so he can restore you, so he can heal you, so that he can forgive you, so that he can redeem you, so that he can transform your life in a way that you never thought possible. And all it takes is for us to recognize who's in the room. So if you would, I'd just like you to just close your eyes just right where you're at, just for a moment. Just for a moment. And my goal with this is just, I wanna, I wanna help you have some, some bandwidth. Just to create a little sacred space where the Holy Spirit can speak to you. When we read the story, where do you naturally place yourself? Do you naturally place yourself with the Pharisee? that is making other people's sin so large that it keeps you from recognizing Jesus is in the room. Do you naturally go toward the people on the wall, the unnamed people in the story, saying, my sin and my shame is too great. I can't come to Jesus. So I'm gonna stay at a distance and I'm not gonna come close? Or are you willing to be like the woman? She said, I'm, not, I'm, gonna let my, I'm gonna bring my past and my future and I'm gonna bring both to Jesus. So Jesus, I pray for my friends today. I pray we would embody the spirit of this woman in the text. That we would bring all that we are. Every tear that we've cried, every hope for our future and bring them to your feet. Jesus, I pray that the gift of your Holy Spirit would do a deep work and permeate our hearts and our minds and our lives. 
that as we say yes to you, you would begin to compound that yes. That that yes would begin to multiply in our hearts and in our lives so that we could see the transformation of God on the earth. We would see him transform us. And just right where you're at, maybe some of us in this room, you're going, I'm, I'm absolutely the people on the wall. I'm the person on the wall. I am, I have, I've not even considered bringing my past, my sin, my shame, my regret, my guilt to the feet of Jesus to ask him for forgiveness. But today I wanna take a step like this woman. And I wanna wanna bring all that I am. Shame and all, sin and all. I wanna bring it to Jesus and ask him to forgive me. I wanna cross the line of faith. I wanna say yes to Jesus. I wanna bring him my past. I wanna bring him my future. And I wanna begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today. If that's you, just right where you're at. I just want you to raise your hand. Just for a moment, just raise your hand. Amen. Amen, if that was you, if you if you're online, you're in the room, if that was you, I just want you to take one step with me and I want you to pray this prayer. I want you to make this prayer your own prayer. Jesus, I bring you my past. And I bring you my future. All my sin, all my shame, I bring it to you. And I trust in your forgiveness. I trust in your grace. So you can have my life, my future. And I'm committed to following you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Radiant Church, can we put our hands together as we stand on our feet for everybody who prayed that prayer? (laughs) For ushers could go ahead and come forward. And I just want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer in your your seat, inside of that that service guide, there is a card that said, I have decided. I want to encourage you to fill that card out. You can drop it in the offering buckets as they go by in just a moment. We're going to pray and we're going to worship as we give. So Jesus, thank you so much for Radiant Church. Thank you for the people of God at Radiant Church in their generous spirits. God, we thank you for the people who are faithful in giving their tithes, their offerings, that that we're seeing people come to know you in in Kansas City and our nation and around the world. God, that we have have missionaries that are serving our city and serving food to the poor. We have missionaries that are going to the darkest places in the world and, and spreading the light of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for what you're doing and you pray, Jesus, as people give, that you would bless them, that they would experience the favor of God on their life as they give. Jesus, we worship you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.